Amen. The Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 8 and the verse number 28 that all things work together for good to them that love God. We know this. We accept this as divine truth. But we do not always live out the reality of it. When dark or difficult times come upon a church or a ministry, we tend to only see the dark cloud and not the silver lining. This may have been the attitude among the Philippians, that they were always looking at the negative, always looking at the things that were going wrong. Paul was concerned that this would be their attitude or become their attitude or was their attitude. And so in verse number 12, he's writing to them to alleviate perhaps the concerns that they had about these dark and difficult things actually hurting his ministry. He writes in verse number 12, But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Now, this should not be a surprise to us, because we believe, as I read Romans 8 verse 28, but it isn't always what we expect. But Scripture reminds us time and time again that although there are certain events and certain things that happen on an individual or upon a ministry or upon a church, and in our sight and to our understanding, those things would hinder and disrupt and destroy the work of God, yet time and time again in Scripture, we see the example of God overruling in these circumstances and bringing them together for good. We'll read tonight of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. Boys and girls, we know the story, don't we, of Joseph, how that he was sold into slavery into Egypt, how that he was lied about by Potiphar's wife, and how then he went into the the prison. He was delivered from the prison, and God used him in Egypt to deliver his whole family from the famine. But notice what it said concerning Joseph in Genesis 50 and verse 20. He's speaking to his brothers, and he says, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, evil against me in selling me into Egypt as a slave, evil against me in telling my father Jacob that I was dead. But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Ye meant it for evil. All of your intentions, all of your plans were designed to destroy me, and yet God used all of those plans to bring about His good. We can read then of Job in Job chapter 23 and the verse number 10. Job 23 and the verse number 10. And again, we know the story of Job, how that God permitted Satan to go and to tempt him. And Job in many ways lost so much. He lost everything apart from his wife, although even she turned against him in some part of it. And Job 23 and verse number 10, it says, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And so although the Lord is leading him through these difficult things and permitting Satan to tempt him, yet ultimately he would come forth as gold. The good of God would be done. And then we think of our Savior in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and the verse number 10. It says there, For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Who ever suffered more than our Savior? 
who had to undergo more of the wicked plans of evil men than what our Savior did. And yet through His suffering, He brought many sons into glory. Through His sufferings, He redeemed the people for Himself. And again, what men intended and designed for evil, God used for good. And so this evening, as we have been reading together from the book of Philippians in the chapter number 1, we are going to be reading about a church in turmoil, a church in a time of great difficulty, and a church in such a situation that if we were just looking in and seeing the events happening and what had taken place, we would rightfully say to ourselves, well, what good is going to come of this? And yet in the midst of all that's going on in the church at Philippi and the church at large in the time of the Apostle Paul, the gospel still advances. The gospel still goes forward. And so this evening I want you to consider with me the subject of the unexpected advance of the gospel. The unexpected advance of the gospel. Now I have entitled this the unexpected advance. Not because the gospel advancing here was by some mere chance. But in man's mind, the circumstances that were prevalent here in the church at Philippi were not congruent with advancing. And yet, as with Joseph, Job, and our Savior, the sovereignty of God was overruling all of these circumstances, and Christ's kingdom was still being built and advancing. There's three things that I want you to notice with me this evening from these verses 12 to verse number 18. The first thing we're going to notice is the attacks expected to hinder the gospel. The attacks expected to hinder the gospel, then the advance of the gospel, and then thirdly, the attitude in response to these attacks. Notice with me, first of all, here in verse number 12 and following, the attacks that were expected to hinder the gospel. It says in verse 12, but I would have you understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather onto the furtherance of the gospel. So he's writing to the church here, because he wants to reassure the Philippians that the gospel ministry that he is engaged in is continuing, and, their, and that their help to him is an aid for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, what are the things that Paul is talking about here? What are these negative, in man's eyes, things that are currently happening within the church? Notice, first of all, in verse number 13, Paul's imprisonment, the imprisonment that Paul was in. He writes and he says, so that my bonds or my imprisonment in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Now, this was Paul's second imprisonment. He was imprisoned, first of all, in Philippi, and then he was imprisoned again as he is now here in Rome. He would also then be imprisoned a third time uh, that is not recorded for us. But in Acts chapter 21, he was arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel, not for a civil crime, not for a moral crime, but for simply preaching Christ. And so that's why he uses that description that these are his, his bonds in Christ, his imprisonment in Christ, because it wasn't for anything bad, it was for simply preaching the gospel. Now here we have what we could say was one of the chief instruments in the early church. Here was one of the key men that God was using in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. 
He was perhaps even the most influential of the apostles at that time. He was the one who would write the most out of all the apostles in the New Testament. He would have influence in establishing and planting many of these churches. And from a human perspective, if you were to look and you were to see one of the key apostles in prison, you would say to yourself, well, what good can come from this? God's man is in prison. God's man has been bound. God's man is held in captivity. But I want you to see here that although God's man was bound, yet God's word wasn't. Although God's man was bound, yet his word wasn't. And that has been the testimony of the church in every single century that the church has ever existed. If you read down through the history of the church, you'll see that prison has always been a second home for God's people. You think about Joseph, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, the early Christians, the pre-reformers such as Huss and Wycliffe, the reformers themselves, the Puritans, the Covenanters, and even those of our own nation in recent years. Prison has been the second home of God's people, and yet has the church not advanced? Has the gospel ground to a halt? Has the kingdom been stamped out? No, of course not, because the Word of God is not bound. And we'll come to see in a moment how that even through the imprisonment of Paul, of Paul, it actually led to the advance of the gospel. But the second thing that we could say that we would expect to hinder the church was infighting in the church. In verse number 15 to 16, Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill, The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Now, what's happening here? Well, as Paul was in prison, there were ministerial colleagues of Paul who were actively using their platform and using their sermons and the influence that they had in the church at Philippi to turn God's people against Paul. And also as well to add difficulty to Paul is in his imprisonment. Notice how Paul would describe some of these men. He says in verse number 15 that they are, some indeed preach Christ even of envy. Now, Help's word studies would say that the word envy here, it is the most miserable trait, or it is the miserable trait of being glad when someone experiences misfortune or pain. They also go on to describe this word as a jealous envy that negatively energizes someone with an embittered mind. And so when God's people, his brethren, his colleagues, saw the difficulty that Paul was in, they were glad. They were happy. And they were actually being used to add that affliction to Paul because they were driven by envy. What were the envious of? Perhaps it was Paul's success. Perhaps it was because people respected Paul more than them. Perhaps it's because Paul had a bigger platform than what they had. But whatever the reason, we know that they were envious. And as they stood up to preach Christ and preach His gospel, they were inserting their anti-Paul rhetoric in that message as well, out of envy. 
It goes on then to describe them as those that were preaching Christ in strife. This means a heated contention, men who were quarreling. It says in verse number 16 that the one preached Christ of contention. In other words, that they were actually acting in their own interest. The idea behind that word contention is electioneering. And so they were going about essentially propping up themselves and trying to degrade the Apostle Paul. In verse number 16, Paul would write that they were doing all of this, supposing to add afflictions to my bonds, to increase his sufferings in prison, to turn his supporters away from him, to preach to us, to stir up the Gentiles there in Rome so that Caesar would deal with Paul more harshly, to make an example out of him. You could think to yourself, what is going on in this church? But let me tell you what's going on here in the church church politics. Yes, church politics in the time of the Apostle Paul. Church politics in the early church. We have this idea sometimes that church politicking and all that goes on, infighting, quarrelings, parties raising up odds at one another, that this is somehow a new invention. It's not. It goes right back to the time of Paul. And here we have, again, let me explain it to you, ministers of the gospel who were preaching Christ. And as they are preaching Christ, they are using their platform and their message to turn people away from the Apostle Paul, a man who would write the majority of the New Testament epistles. If you were to look at that and you were to look at the church at Philippi, you would go and visit on a Sunday. In our understanding today, you might say, I'm not joining that church. Look at all the problems that church has. Look at all the fighting that's going on in that church. I'm not going to go and join that church. And you could also look at this and say, well, how could anybody expect the gospel to advance? Paul's in prison, infighting in the church, schisms, trying to rend the bride of Christ asunder. And yet, in this very moment, in the midst of imprisonment and infighting, the gospel advances. And I want you to see with me, secondly, the advance of the gospel. In verse number 13 and 14, as Paul writes about his imprisonment, he says there, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I want you to see here three ways in which the gospel advanced. In the midst of all this contention and conflict, three ways in which the gospel still advanced. First of all, through the spreading of the message. The gospel advanced through the spreading of the gospel message. Notice with me there as we've read verse 13. His bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. Now, I want you to see that word palace there. That is the Greek word praetorium. Some would say that this is speaking about Caesar's palace itself. Others would say, well, this is actually the praetorium guard. Those were Caesar's special bodyguards that were there in his house. And so this gospel, more than likely, through the soldiers that were with Paul, chained to him as he's in prison with an 18-inch chain, 
Those soldiers were being witnessed to by Paul. They would hear the gospel. They would go back as they were rotating on their duty into Caesar's palace, into the Praetorium Guard, and they would begin to tell one another, I've been speaking with this man about Christ. And those men were getting converted and born again. And the gospel then was spreading right throughout Caesar's household. The gospel message spread. But Paul's in prison. God's man. The main man that was just storming ahead in evangelism, getting beaten and persecuted and picking himself up and just storming ahead. That man that was just like a bull for going out and just continuing on, full of strength and vigor. He's in prison. And yet the gospel is still advancing. It's still advancing. The message is still spreading. But then notice with me, the advance of the gospel in the salvation of souls. In Philippians chapter 4, in the verse number 22, Paul writes there, All the saints salute you, chiefly lay that are of Caesar's household. Those within the very household of Caesar. Not just those who were the private security of Caesar himself, the praetorium guard, but actually those in the household of Satan. Perhaps family. I think we can go as far as saying that when we talk about the household of Satan, or of Caesar, sorry, that some of his family were converted. His servants, most definitely, and so on. And so the gospel here is still advancing in the salvation of souls. But how could that be? Did Caesar's household not hear about what was going on in the church? Did Caesar's household not hear about all the infighting that was going on, all the squabbling, all the conflict? They probably did. And yet, my friend, they were still being converted. They were still being converted. But also as well, the gospel advanced in the strengthening of the saints. In verse number 14, Paul writes about how many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by his bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The believers who were following Paul and who hadn't been turned against Paul, they were spurred on by his example. They were looking at Paul and saying, well, if he is going to such lengths for the sake of Christ, then I ought to go to such lengths for the sake of Christ. And they were being emboldened by that. They were looking and they were seeing the grace of God in Paul's life, preserving him, keeping him in the midst of persecution and imprisonment. And they were saying to themselves, well, if Paul can endure that, and there's grace for Paul, there'll be grace for me if I must go through that. They were being spurred on. The saints were being strengthened. Is this not the opposite to the, or to the conclusion that you and I would write? Would we not read about these things and look at these things and say, well, the church then entered into a time where it stagnated and declined and went down and deteriorated and so on? No. The gospel advanced. And the gospel continued to spread. But notice what Paul writes when he speaks about the strengthening of the saints. He says, and many of the brethren. Many of the brethren. Not all the brethren. Many. And it is possible that in times when we would least expect the gospel to advance, 
that the gospel would advance and that the message would spread, that souls would be saved, and that the saints would be strengthened, but there would be those in the church and they would not be encouraged by it. There would be those in the church and they would not be ministered to through what God is doing in the midst of these things. They miss out. They miss out on God's blessing. They miss out on seeing what God is doing. And that can be for many reasons. Why was it that some of these Christians weren't seeing what God was doing? Why weren't they being encouraged? Perhaps it's because they were just the type of people that were always critical, always negative. If, you know, somebody walked in and said, listen, three people in Caesar's household got saved. Well, you know, there's a hundred people live with Caesar. What's three people? They would go in and they would say, well, listen, Paul's writing about the grace and he's now writing this letter to the church at Philippi. He's in prison. He'll soon forget about us. There are those people and they just by their own nature and their own disposition, have a negative attitude. My friend, let me warn you. You can miss out on seeing what the Lord is doing if you always possess that negativity and that attitude of just always doom and gloom. You'll miss out on what the Lord is doing. But there could have been others that didn't want to see what the Lord was doing. There could have been those that were rightfully going against Paul. Or not rightfully going against Paul, but going against Paul, and perhaps had been turned or swayed by some of these preachers. And so whenever they saw, well, Paul's in prison, but the fact he's in prison has now given him an opportunity to spread the gospel into Caesar's house. They didn't want to see it. They didn't want to see what the Lord was doing. There's some people, and they'll downplay the work of God. They'll downplay the services They'll downplay the impact that the church is having because they don't want to admit that the Lord is doing something because it's not being done the way in which they thought it should be done. Oh, I pray that we would not miss out on being those who would be encouraged by what the Lord is doing. But notice thirdly this evening, finally, the attitude in response to the attacks the attitude in response to the attacks. Paul displays here for us what can only be described as spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Paul does not simply lose his mind or become defeated with all that is happening in the church. He says in verse number 18, What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense, that's out of an ill motive or a wrong motive, or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul has this understanding that the church is never perfect. Paul has this understanding that difficult times come into the church. Paul has a right and a mature understanding that naturally there's going to be disagreement among sinful human beings. And he's just resolved to accept that. But he deals with what is going on with a great spiritual maturity. And that notice, first of all, his resignation here. He is just glad that Christ is preached. 
Yes, these men are preaching against me, but you know what? As they stand up and as they preach, they're still preaching Christ. I know they come to that point in their sermon where they're getting at me and preaching against me, but the rest of their sermon, they're preaching Christ. And Paul's just resigned to that. They're preaching Christ. But then he goes on and he rejoices. Whether they're preaching Christ out of ill motive, whether they're preaching Christ in truth, he is going to rejoice. Because the chief concern and the chief goal of Paul's life is to see the name and the person of Christ lifted up, magnified. And so he doesn't just put up with it. He doesn't just stomach it. He rejoices. He rejoices. Can I say to you this evening that this is not a temperament that I have yet developed in my own self? If I heard about somebody wanting or somebody preaching against me, falsely misrepresenting me, I don't know. I'm not sure if I could bear it. (laughs) I'm not sure if I could simply let it go. The old man in me would want to walk up and just knock them out. Not that I would, but I, I would probably want to if I had to just be honest. And yet Paul's just rejoicing. He's just rejoicing. Christ is being preached. Christ is being magnified. He doesn't bear a grudge. He just rejoices in Christ being preached. And this is important in ministry as well. Because there will be times when people will malign us, when those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, whom we perhaps, you know, preached with, shared a pulpit with, did evangelism with, and all of a sudden, they're still going on and they're in a ministry and they're preaching and so on, but it's like there's something against us and they've turned against us. The attitude we ought to have is that of spiritual maturity. We recognize the human nature that we all have, but we also learn to rejoice in the things that matter, and that is that Christ is being preached. Notice then his resolve. He says, and will rejoice. So not just in the moment, in the present, but going into the future, he will rejoice. He's not expecting all of these debates and arguments to be settled in a moment. He recognizes that this conflict in the church is something that's going to carry on into the future, but it doesn't matter to him because as long as Christ is preached, yea, and will rejoice. I'll rejoice on in the future Christ is magnified. He is lifted up. So what about my name? As one of the Moravian missionaries said, he said, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. For as long as He is remembered, and as long as He is lifted up, and as long as He is presented to the people, who are we to think that we matter? light of Him and an eternity. But you know, in conclusion, things can happen in the context of a local church, a denomination, a presbytery. Things can happen that, as we look at it, that would negatively impact the work of God. Infighting, fallouts, squabbles, imprisonment of ministers, 
decline in numbers, finances, many things, thousand things, too many to name, can happen to a church and we could think to ourselves, well, if this keeps going, this is the demise of this. And we develop an attitude where we simply don't expect much. We don't expect much. And yet the Word of God is not bound. The Word of God is not bound. And God can build His church even when the circumstances would seem to all be against the building and the making of His church. I want to give one final application. And I haven't written this message to the congregation here, but I want to make one final point of application that during a time of vacancy, an attitude can creep in upon a congregation where, well, we can't do anything without a man. We'll not grow without a minister. We'll not spiritually progress without a minister. And let me say, a minister is vital for a congregation. Absolutely vital. But is that true? That without a minister in the pulpit, that somehow the congregation, numerically, spiritually, just has to stagnate? No. No. The Word of God is not bound. And we pray that God would bring men week after week to preach His Word. And as the Word is preached, that the Lord will bring people in. And as you go out, and more people will come in. And as you witness, guess what can happen? The law, the circumstances seem to be against it. God can build His church. God can build His church. And you can be able to look back over a time of vacancy and say, Do you know what? We didn't expect the gospel to advance in that time, but the gospel did advance. The gospel did advance. Oh, I pray that you would see this evening the unexpected advance of the gospel. Not unexpected from God's mind, but unexpected from ours. And that you this evening would resolve within your heart and in your life to expect the growth of the church, to expect the advance of the gospel, and to earnestly plead with God that as His Word is not bound, that it would have free course right throughout this congregation, right throughout this community, right throughout this city, that He would build His church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We'll close together by the singing of 554. 554. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but His love abideth ever through eternal years the same. Let's stand, please, as we would sing 554. And we'll sing all of this hymn to God's praise.